Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, though, we start with the pressures in BC's healthcare system. Premier David Eby has a news conference later today. The government attempting to hire more nurses to deal with the surge in demand in our system. Meanwhile, the government overhauling how BC's medical professions are governed. Lots of concerns from healthcare workers about that. Could this be a government effort to silence healthcare workers who speak up and speak out about health, government healthcare policies? Let's discuss all this now with my guest, Dr. Kevin McLeod, internal medicine specialist, Lionsgate Hospital. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Kevin, thank you very much for coming on today. Mike, anytime. It's always nice to be here. So, Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Before I ask you about uh, Bill 36, let me ask you about the stresses and strains in the system, because I always love getting your perspective on it right on the front lines of the system there. What are you seeing right now? We saw the government last week announce those emergency operation centers here to deal with the surge. Like, is it looking pretty, like, how would you describe the, the system right now? I mean, there's, there's for sure a surge of respiratory illnesses. It's predominantly not COVID, but other respiratory illnesses, um, although COVID's playing a role. But the problem is more that our hospitals are just really full, um, and, and they're full for a bunch of reasons. We can't get people out and home because, you know, we don't have support staff in the community or, you know, we don't have enough long-term care workers. People have left to do other jobs. It's not the most appealing job. So we've got a lot of people in acute care hospitals who don't need to be there. But then it, it just plugs the whole system up because if you can't get those people home, then you come into hospital and you've got an acute illness you can't get to a bed. You're stuck in a hallway because somebody's stuck in the bed that needs to get to the long-term care home. So there's there's just all these little, you know, backlogs in the system that, that all sort of exponentially make the problem worse, right? And, you know, similar yeah. for somebody, I know they're not canceling surgeries right now or they're desperately trying not to and good on them for that. But, you know, we have a surgery, you need a bed after that surgery. Well, if that bed is filled with somebody who's waiting to get into long-term care where well, your surgery is delayed, right? Um, you know, and, and then as I think the ministers or, or the, the premier is going to be talking about, I mean, we're so short staff when it comes to not just nursing, but allied health staff, you know, that really delays getting people out of hospital. If you don't have adequate physiotherapy in the hospital, and it's not for lack of money, like the government's pouring money at this, but there aren't people to easily hire or, the jobs become so unpleasant that people don't want to do it. Mm. You know, then then you've got the patient who's lying in a bed for three days without physio. Well, if you're 88, you're not getting home after that. You're, you're going to be in there for an extra week or two to get moving because we couldn't actually provide you with adequate care at the start. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't 
solely blame government for that. I mean, it's a really hard thing to fix. But the the work environment, I've never seen morale this low, Mike. Like the, the work environment's really difficult. And I've been doing this like 17 years and it just, it never lets up. It sort of, it, it, there's never a day that's calm. Like I had a few days off over the holidays and you come back and it's just like the volume of stuff is, is really, to be honest, absurd. And, you know, and then things like Bill 36, like government, we're, we're kind of down on the ground. And, and what are they doing to help us? Well, they're, they're kicking us when we're down and throwing bureaucrats on top of us. So it's, it's just really, really challenging. Okay, let's, let's talk about that, Bill 36. I, I think this is something that maybe a lot of people in the public don't understand what the government is doing here. As I understand it, uh, BC, they're taking a look at the, the professional colleges that regulate prof- medical professions, healthcare professions in BC. There are currently 15 colleges in BC. You have this new act called the Health Professions and Occupations Act that will streamline that down to six colleges. And the college's oversight system will be expanded to include more professionals. Let, let's talk about your concerns here, because I've heard this from other healthcare workers who say, hang on, is, the, is this giving more power to government and bureaucrats, like you said, and potentially telling healthcare professionals to, to shut up, don't, do not speak out, do not criticize the system? I mean, one of the reasons I love having you on is you're fearless and you're willing to speak your mind about what you see on the front lines of our system. Do you think that's a problem that that maybe there could be efforts to shut people up? I think so. I mean, you you know, so this for those who don't know, like this bill 36 passed in November. I mean, this is now the law of British Columbia. So it's not like we're fighting to say, hey, you know, we don't want this to pass. It's been passed. Um, It hasn't been fully implemented. And that's probably actually going to take quite some time because it's a complicated thing. But this will govern the 130,000 plus healthcare workers in the province. So it's not just doctors, it's nurses, it's naturopaths, it's acupuncturists, it's massage therapists, it's any, any health profession, even clinical counselors. So, you know, they're now going to be governed by very different rules. And, and typically professionals are self-governing. So, you know, we would elect members to a board um, of the college and, and of physicians and surgeons, and, you know, they set out the standards of practice. And they're, they're fairly strict standards of practice. I mean, you know, if I'm held to a very high standard. There are some problems with the way it works, in my view, that, you know, sometimes we're not transparent if there's a complaint. And, and you know, there needs to be more transparency and, and accountability for patients and, and the public. Absolutely. But this wasn't really the way to achieve it because now instead of us being self-governed or really any health profession being self-governed, the government will appoint the board. And, you know, so they will choose lay people, not physicians, to set my standards of practice or the government will. Um, They will determine what makes me, in their words, of good character to be able to maintain a license. And, you know, if you'd asked me a few years ago if if I would have thought government would try to muzzle somebody, maybe I was naive. I would have said no. You know, through the pandemic, I I don't think I was hugely controversial, but I, I did make a few comments that, you know, may not have jived perfectly with what public health was saying. And I I think I have a lot of experience and, you know, I'm on my 68,000 patients. So I see a lot um, and have a reasonable opinion, I think. But, you know, I was told quite clearly not to speak out and, um, you know, that it risked my employment at the hospital and other things. And so there, there, and, and, and so there is, 
there is a desire to control a narrative. I mean, you see that in media. And and if if physicians and other health professionals have our autonomy eroded and can't speak out, you know, that, that actually becomes a problem. And it, it kind of goes back to the very first thing you said where, where we were talking about where, you know, the problems in healthcare aren't really money related, right? Now it's this morale and, you know, people just wanting to get out. You know, my wife and I talk about it fairly frequently. She says, you got to get out of this. Think of something else, go into business, do some other career. And, you know, for the first time in the last year, I've actually been thinking about doing that. And, and I think if you, if you pass things that, you know, allow government to step in and, more and more try to control things um, when I know that's just not going to be effective for patients. It, it does push people out um, or it, it makes people just kind of throw up their hands and morale is even lower. Um, and, okay. and to me, that's a problem. I remember you've been on a guest on this show frequently and I recall you having not saying a lot that I thought was particularly outrageously controversial. Like what was it that you said that resulted in you being warned like that, that you shouldn't be speaking out like that? Well, Mike, I think, you know, like without going into huge specifics with it for a bunch of reasons, you know, really, like if I want to speak out as a physician, I should go through media relations and, you know, follow a chain of command to do that. Um, You know, and and to me, like I've not done that. And, you know, if somebody wants to fire me, that's fine. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not looking for more work. But, but um, you know, so I'm not, I don't, I'm not fearful of that. But, but if suddenly your license is on the line, if you, if you speak out, um, and, you know, the other problem that most health professionals won't know because they haven't read this bill, you know, in, in the past, if there's a complaint made against you, you know, that's discussed, there's a due process. And this doesn't remove the due process, but the due process now is going to be very public. Um, you know, and I've been lucky that, you know, I think I, I work really hard and provide a high standard of care. I've never had a, a serious complaint against me in 17 years, but there have been some frivolous ones. Um, you know, I had somebody that really didn't like me and they, they put a complaint in saying that my office is strewn with liquor bottles and I, I threw one uh-huh. towards her head and it smashed against a wall. Well, clearly frivolous, clearly made up. But, you know, if, if that's put out to the public without context... Um, as it's being looked at, like you, you know, you you do you do put that healthcare professional under tremendous strain and stress, and you know, we do see healthcare professionals committing suicide and and getting into some pretty dark places when these complaints go through. Now you have to balance that with absolutely, we need way better protections for the public. But but why why put all the effort into something like this when instead we could have put the effort into getting physician assistants licensed in BC or actually streamlining the process to get foreign trained nurses and doctors who live here into the system. Like it, it seems like we're, we're kind of putting a lot of effort into these punishment things and not into some things that would actually boost morale and really help us and help patients. Okay. Dr. McLeod, thank you for your thoughts on it today. I always value you as a guest on this show, and I encourage you to keep speaking out and speaking up. And I appreciate you sharing your those stories with us today. All right, let's talk about fighting that traffic ticket now. Have you ever got a ticket you thought was 
unfair. Maybe as a parking ticket, distracted driving, photo radar. You can fight these tickets. You can fight back. You can fight the power. But check this out. Some new statistics showing fewer drivers disputing tickets in court. Why is that going on? Let's discuss it with my guest now, Kyla Lee, traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. It's always great to have her on. Kyla, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay. Typically in the past, in your experience, what percentage of tickets actually get disputed? Like how many people actually do fight back and and try to go to court to overturn a ticket? Um, it's not as high as you would think. Um, there's a a large percentage of, uh, people who just pay their traffic tickets. And, um, in the last several years as well, we've seen the rates of people who are disputing the traffic tickets declining steadily with a huge jump in the last, uh, in the last calendar year. Okay. That's what's really interesting. I think right now, why do you think that is happening. Like, like you mentioned, I suppose most people, you know, you get, you get a ticket, especially if you've been caught red handed and you're, you know, you know, you're guilty. You can pay the fine. But I mean, if someone's got a legit case to fight back and dispute a ticket, why do you think that we're seeing that trend of fewer people disputing the tickets? I think that there's a lot that goes into it. Um, In part, I think inflation has had a significant amount to do with it. People sort of are calculating the cost of taking a day off work or taking um, time out of their schedule to go to court, um, potentially losing versus being able to pay the fine now. Um, Worries about money in the future and being able to pay the fine in six or eight months when your court date comes around if you're not successful versus, you know, making those arrangements, paying it now and getting it over with. Um, I think that's a huge portion of it. I also think, you know, we've sort of seen a a general trend um, over the last several years since COVID um, towards more um, compliance with the police and compliance with the state, which makes people less likely to want to dispute things. Um, Those are some of my theories, but (laughs) there's a lot uh, that, uh, that could potentially be going into it. That's very interesting. Do you think that some people think, well, you know, I'm not happy with this ticket. I don't think it's fair, but there's no way I, you can't fight City Hall. I am, I'm going to lose even if I go to court. Do you think some people mistakenly think they can't overturn a ticket when maybe in reality they can? I think a lot of people think that they they count themselves out um, because, uh, you know, I hear a lot from clients, you know, with my word against his um, when it comes to the officer and the court's just going to believe the officer. And it doesn't work that way. But we, you know, because we are socialized to sort of trust the police and believe the police, um, people think that it applies that way in court. And they don't realize that even something as simple as a traffic ticket still has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Right, right. Okay. Can you beat the rap? right at the curbside like typically like let's say you're pulled over or there's a police officer writing you up for parking or you're pulled over for some infraction infraction whether it's distracted driving can you sometimes ask the police officer to give you a break and just be real nice and the police officer puts the ticket book away does that ever happen I'm sure it's happened, but uh, that would be the exception and not the rule. And uh, certainly not my recommendation to, for people to try and negotiate a break at the roadside. Uh, it usually okay. ends up making you, uh, making you make the officer angry. <laughs> okay, so that can backfire. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking to Kyla Lee, traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. Kyla, let's have a listen to this, um, some audio here. Now, this is from a recent 
viral video here in Vancouver. And what you will hear is a, a Vancouver driver uh, parking near the Olympic Village. And he is in a spot where you definitely are not allowed to park without paying. Okay, so it's a metered it's a metered traffic spot. You have to pay to park there. But here's what he's going to say to this bylaw enforcement officer. He says, look, I'm just here for a couple of minutes to pick someone up. Basically, give me a break. I'm sitting in the vehicle. I'm leaving in a second here. Why are you doing this to me? The bylaw enforcement officer is not having any of it. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. So this is a Vancouver driver here trying to beat a parking ticket. Listen to this. Sir, why are you giving me a ticket? I'm not giving you a ticket. I told you not. I, I didn't want to give you a ticket. I requested you to pay. And you I'm refused. just waiting for someone, sir. How long, how long have I been waiting for? You're holding a spot. I explained it's a pay zone. You're overstepping, sir. Sure. How long have you seen me waiting for? I can't time everybody. That's not how it works, sir. You're holding a spot. I reminded you it's a pay zone, right? I'm not holding a spot. Your car is here. Yes, and I am inside the car. And I reminded you, it's a pay zone. Can you make a payment? And you refused. I am I'm inside the car. Okay, so the guy is trying to say, look, I'm just here to pick someone up. You know, basically give me a break. I haven't walked away from the car. I'm behind the wheel in this car. And the guy's still trying to write him up, is still writing him a ticket. And he didn't He didn't beat this ticket. The, the bylaw officer, enforcement, enforcement officer, writes the ticket, walks away. What do you think of that? Like... I, that's not an adequate excuse, is it? I'm waiting to pick someone up. I've only been here for five minutes. Nope. Uh, if you're parked uh, in a pay parking spot, you're required to pay immediately upon parking your vehicle there. So it's not an excuse. And certainly the bylaw enforcement officer wasn't in the wrong to issue him the ticket. Uh, it does sound like, you know, he, he could have been a little nicer about it. But uh, no. yeah, he was doing his job and he did what he was entitled to do. I have been able to dodge a parking ticket, though, if I'm, let's say I'm walking back to my car, parked at a parking meter, the time has just run out, there is an officer, a bylaw officer there just took out, you know, is writing me up right there, and then you arrive right that moment, you know, and you say, I'm sorry, I'm here. I've had the officer say, okay, fine, you know, just put the ticket book away, because you just before he's written it up. You know, if you get back just in time, like, before the ticket's been written, I've had that happen. What do yes, you think of that? I've heard stories. I, I mean, that's worked for me too. Um, especially if you're very nice, you're about to, oh my god, I'm so sorry, I'm right here. I I was just on my way. Um, yeah. Usually, they'll exercise a little bit of discretion then, um, as opposed to the situation that you just played, where somebody's sort of arguing with them and saying, you know, I'm just I'm just waiting for somebody. That's you know, that's very different than I was trying to get back to my car on time and I made it maybe like a couple seconds or a minute or two late. Yeah. Um, I've yeah, seen I mean, people it, go a little. <laughs> go ahead, Kyla. Go ahead. I was going to say, I've seen a little, people go a little bit too far with it, though, and do things like jump into their car and drive away or get in their car and say, you know, you can't ticket me. I'm already in my car. I'm leaving. Uh, and that's oh. where you get into trouble. <laughs> yeah, no, that's probably, yeah, you're really asking for trouble there if I think if you try to drive away. All right. I'm talking about fighting traffic tickets with my guest, Kyla Lee, Acumen Law. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Paul in Port Moody. Hi, Paul. Go ahead. I just had a, uh, a situation where I had a FODAR radar, and I looked online for advice about it. And what I did was I just ignored uh, the letter that came in. And then after they sent the letter, I believe a couple times at DLH they sent a courier. I ignored that, and it, it just went away. Uh, and I think they have to serve you 
um, and it costs them money to actually get a court. Uh, uh, so I think it's not worth it to them to spend, you know, 75, 100 bucks to get a ticket back for 100 bucks. So they just, it just goes away of it. They just, get, they just give up. Yeah. So yeah, they get, when, did. when, when did this happen? When did you, when did you get the ticket? Oh, this was a while ago. This was, this was actually before everybody was getting packages all the time. Like, you know, maybe about, you know, 15 years ago or so or something 15 like that. years. Okay. Okay. Well, I think, I think they probably have forgotten about it by now. Kyla, what do you think? Uh, yeah, after 15 years, they probably did forget about it. Might not have been able to prove that it was ever received in the mail. Um, but, you know, they are getting better at uh, tracking you down for those uh, those photo tickets now. Um, they have different methods of ensuring that you received it and ensuring that you paid it, include, including not re- uh, reinstating your license and not letting you buy insurance unless it's been paid. Right. I remember I got a ticket once in Washington State and got this demand demand letter in the mail saying you better pay up. Kind of. I wasn't really ignoring it. I think I just forgot about it. And then they followed that up with some very toughly worded a letter. I remember getting this letter saying like, you know, uh, we are turning your your outstanding fine over to a debt collection agency, and you're going to hear from them, and they're going to get you. And it was like, whoa. And I was like, okay, here's your buddy. I I just paid, you know. Like, will they really come after you for a for a traffic ticket? So in BC, usually your fines don't get turned over to debt collection. Usually, what happens is they just now wait you out. Um, they they will um, refuse to issue you a driver's license if your license yeah. expires. They'll refuse to renew your insurance, um, and so you you essentially get consequences because you won't be able to drive anymore, or you won't be able to insure your car. Right. Yeah. I mean, once they've got you, I mean, you're paying. You, you, you need your license. Let's go to Chris and Langley. Hi, Chris. Go ahead. Hey, Kyla. I'm not sure you would know or be able to know, maybe just let you guess, uh, what percentage of tickets, distracted driving tickets, are issued to people in stationary cars versus a car in motion? Uh, you know, obviously, uh, they, they deem it as dangerous as drinking and driving. A officer I've uh, talked to has said it, they know it's far-fetched. To, to suggest that sitting in a stationary vehicle looking at your phone is as dangerous as drinking and driving, but that's the law. So I'm just curious on what kind of percentage is it, 70, 80, 90? I think it's probably close to 90, but what, what do you think? Kyla? I mean, there's no there's no real way to tell from the statistics because there's no differentiation in the ticket t- itself um, for stationary versus moving. But from my anecdotal experience, about 90% of tickets are for those stationary walking up and down the red light types of uh, traffic stops and not seeing somebody actively using their phone while the vehicle's in motion. Yeah, I mean, you're a sitting duck at that point, aren't you? For a police officer, you're you're looking at that phone, you're at a red light officer standing right beside right at your window i mean you're done they got you especially if you're in a location where it's you know notorious that traffic backs up those are the types of locations that police officers love to walk up and down and look in the windows of cars when you're not paying attention because your head is in your phone yeah and i'm i'm sure it is a very high percentage fits that category 604-280-9898 is the number to call Star 9898 on your cell. Bruce in Vancouver. Hi, Bruce. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I was wondering what your guests thought about the legality of uh, the parking lots of Stanley Park, which are like public parking, only kind of communal, where you're only allowed to have a credit card. You can't pay cash. You can't use your debit card. Um, any opinion on that? Kyla. 
Well, I mean, because it is a, you know, semi-private space, um, paying for parking um, can be done in sort of any way that uh, the people who manage the space want to do. I do have a problem with it in that I find that it's not very inclusive for people who don't use um, credit or debit cards, um, people who, who have cash and have, you know, have don't have credit cards for legitimate reasons. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you know that the parking space only takes um, credit cards, then you should probably make alternative arrangements if you want to visit Stanley Park. Um, in the same way that if you go to a parking meter that only accepts coins, we don't complain to the city that it doesn't take your credit card. Thank you for the call, Bruce. Keep calling me on this now. If you have a traffic law question, if you ever fought a ticket and won, you ever got an unfair ticket, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Carl in Maple Ridge. Hi, Carl. Go ahead. Oh, hello. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Um, yes, I, I uh, remember when we when we had the bad storms in November 2021. Yeah, with right. all with all the roads closed in the Okanagan coming back to the coast. Yeah, yeah I took I did a car transfer for my company up to Quinnell, and on the way back, uh, I've heard that they are going to close the roads towards Pemberton, and so I was a bit anxious and uh, went somewhat over the speed limit, oh. in uh, on an eight lane highway, and a Kamloops police officer he stopped me and gave me a ticket because i was like 13 kilometers over the speed limit there were no other cars on an eight-lane highway and i explained to him that i would really like to make it to the coast before they closed the road and they sure did at 4 p.m so i just made it across to pemberton whistler and uh he he gave me a ticket for $120. Oh, boy. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, 13 clicks over the limit. That's not very much. Kyla, your thoughts? It's not very much. And, you know, a lot of people sort of think that, you know, you can get a little margin of, you know, 10, 15 kilometers an hour over the speed limit and not get ticketed. And that's not true. You can be ticketed for even one kilometer an hour over the speed limit. It's less likely, but it can happen, especially when there are potential problems with road conditions, like when closures are upcoming due to weather events. Um, that there can even be tickets if your speed isn't over the speed limit, but it's inappropriate given the road conditions. So I'm not surprised in that situation that a ticket was issued. Just a minute left. Greg in Qualicum Beach. Greg, please go quickly. you got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Oh, oh, hi. Um, No, I just got a a cell phone ticket in Victoria a few years back, and same situation, um, heavy traffic, police officer walking up and down. But my phone, I was talking on the phone, and but my phone was actually sitting on my lap, and I was using hands-free. And he gave me a ticket, and the judge threw it out because oh. the judge said it was sitting on a shelf. Okay, thank <laughs> you for that, Greg. Yeah. Kyla, 30 seconds left here. What do you think of that? Uh, he's probably lucky he was in a, a sweet spot in the time where a lap wasn't considered holding your phone, but the law has changed on that, and you cannot have your phone on your lap, so don't do it. <laughs> okay. All right. Good to know. Thank you, Kyla. Thank you for having me. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Prince Harry now. His new book, Spare, is out officially tomorrow. Already the top of the bestseller list on Amazon and in support of the book sales. Wow, what a whirlwind round of fresh interviews Prince Harry has been doing. He was on 60 Minutes yesterday, ITV in the United Kingdom, Good Morning America this morning. He is on the Stephen Colbert Show tomorrow night. This is all in advance of the book officially being released to the buying public tomorrow. Let's discuss now with my guest, Christina Blizzard. Christina is a longtime journalist. She's covered a lot in the royal family, including royal tours, Westminster Abbey, the Queen Mother's funeral. And I am very pleased to welcome Christina to the show. Christina, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Okay, let's uh, let's get into some of the highlights here from these interviews. And I know some of these jumped out at you and to a lot of people and then get your thoughts. Now, here is Prince Harry speaking to Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes. And he's talking here about the, the death of Queen Elizabeth. Now, he happened to be in the United Kingdom at the, at the time when the, uh, the Queen became very, very ill. And listen how he describes here how the rest of the royal family flew up to to be with the Queen um, and left him behind. He was not on the royal plane. Have a listen to this, and I'll get your thoughts. I asked my brother, I said, what are your plans? How are you and Kate getting up there? Um, and then a couple of hours later, you know, all of the fam- family members that live within the Windsor and Ascot area were jumping on a plane together, a plane with 12, 14, maybe 16 seats. You were not invited on that plane. I was not invited. Okay, so he's not invited on that flight, Christina, to go see the Queen. What do you think of that? Well, I think the other part of that story is that Harry insisted on taking Meghan with him at one point. And there was a story earlier, you'll remember, Mike, about how he was arguing with his father, now King Charles, about taking Meghan Well, you know, why on earth would he think that the queen would want at her deathbed, you know, a person who has for the past two, maybe three years, constantly uh, attacked her, attacked everything that the queen, the Queen Elizabeth held dear to her, that, uh, you know, stinging criticisms of her family. And now Harry, uh, Harry and Meghan want to show up at her deathbed, quite apart from the fact that this couple seems to be monetizing the intimate details of this family. You're now, yeah. You now want to give them access to her dying. So I don't really blame the family for saying um, no, no room on the plane. But do you think, though, like Harry and also Meghan in her interviews as well, they were always very careful to be very complimentary of the Queen and talk about, Harry has talked about the, re- the close relationship he had with Queen Elizabeth, they even named their own daughter Lilibet, right? Which is uh, Queen Elizabeth's sort of pet family name. Her family members call her that. But you think they were estranged, though, badly estranged because of all this? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think that one of the Queen's lady, ladies in waiting said recently, uh, you know, how much this had hurt the Queen in the last two years of her life. Don't forget that Oprah interview happened at the time when the Queen's dear husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, was lying, was dying. He was in hospital dying. Yeah. And this couple went on TV. I think they say that they want to, uh, you know, this is not an attack on the Queen. But in fact, 
it very much was an attack on the Queen. The monarchy is an, an you know an institution of which she was and you know the the head of the monarchy. But uh, they attacked the Commonwealth, which was the the Queen regarded the Commonwealth as her great legacy. They attacked that. Calling their uh, daughter Lilibet actually was viewed by some. I think a lot of people raised eyebrows in that. That was a personal family pet name for uh, Elizabeth when she was right. a child. And a lot of people, if you want to pay tribute to the monarch, call call your daughter Elizabeth. Then perhaps mm. shorten it to Lilibet. But that was that was almost an insult. I think uh, just appropriating that very personal name. Okay, let's listen to another highlight here. This is another clip, uh, Christina, from Prince Harry speaking to 60 Minutes. Now, here she he is talking about Camilla Parker Bowles, of course, now the wife of King Charles. And this is really interesting because he discloses that Prince Harry said he and his brother William both appealed to Charles to not marry Camilla Parker Bowles and... He describes her here as dangerous, dangerous. Have a listen to what Prince Harry says here about Camilla, and I'll get your thoughts. How was she dangerous? Because of the need for her to rehabilitate her image. That made her dangerous? That made her dangerous because of the connections that she was forging within the British press. And there was open willingness on both sides to trade of information. And with a family built on hierarchy, and with her on the way to being Queen Consort, there was going to be people or bodies left in the street because of that. Okay, and then he makes clear that the bodies left in the street would include himself and and Meghan Markle, basically suggesting that Camilla was planting negative news stories about them to the to the UK press, maybe in agreement for the, the Fleet Street press or the tabloid press in the United Kingdom to back off of Camilla and Charles. I don't like I still haven't seen any direct evidence that they did that though. Christina, your thoughts? Yeah, no, well, exactly. I, I mean, unless you, it's all very well for Harry to lob these, out, lob out these grenades. He hasn't backed it up with any incidents of how this happened. Look, yeah. I understand that Camilla was the other woman. Although, actually, you could make a strong argument that Camilla was Charles's first love. It was, it was Charles's fault. He did it. He didn't marry her, and then he married Diana. You know, after that, all fell through. So I understand that Harry is angry with Camilla for being the other woman who in in his father's life. But I don't see where Camilla is dangerous. Don't forget Camilla for all the time that she was, uh, you know, she was the, you know, Charles's girlfriend. She had no security. And if you read mm-hmm. Tina Brown's book, The Palace Papers, she would be driving around in her, an old Jeep and, and to her home with no security, nothing whatsoever. And she just did the British stiff upper lip and, 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 and did that. I, I'm not quite sure how she was dangerous, and really, yeah. what is Harry doing now? But planting, uh, planting, doing the same thing to all these TV networks uh, in in the United States and and in the United Kingdom. Yeah. I think it's um, I, I I think it's not what we hear from other uh, biographers and other historical sources. Speaking to royal family analyst Christina Blizzard about Prince Harry's new book. It's out tomorrow, his whirlwind round of fresh media interviews. Let's listen to another one. Now, this is one that got a lot of attention. 
he told Anderson Cooper about how he how he was told about the death of his mother, Princess Diana. Uh, it was a very dramatic sequence he describes where Charles comes into his bedroom. Remember, Harry was only 12 years old when his mother Diana died, and his father comes in to give him this news. Now, listen to what he says here, though, that he says that for many years he didn't actually believe that his mother was dead, that maybe this was somehow her death was faked, perhaps. Have a listen to what he says here, then I'll get your thoughts. You didn't believe she was dead? For a long, for a long time. I just refused to accept that she was, she was gone. Um, part of, you know, she would never do this to us, but also part of maybe this is all part of a plan. I mean, you, you really believe that maybe she had just decided to disappear for a time? For a time, and then that she would call us and we would go and join her. Yeah. How long did you believe that? Years. Many, many years. And William and I talked about it as well. He had, um, he had similar thoughts. Okay, so he says that his brother William also thought this might be the case. And, you know, when you hear that, Christina, you think, like, this sounds bizarre that he would really think this. But on the other hand, I think, like, this is a guy who grew up in this surreal circumstance, in this fishbowl, and maybe that would play some mental tricks on you over time. Anyway, your thoughts about what he had to say there? Yeah, yeah I think you're absolutely right. I think that when you grow up in what to many of us would be a fantasy world. And, you know, when something like that happens when you're 12, I'm sure that you um, you can convince yourself that perhaps your mother is still there. So I think that that is, was actually very tragic, um, a, a very tragic part of that interview. But I think it speaks to just how emotionally wounded uh, Harry was at that point and how, you know, he really seem to need a lot more help. I mean, a lot of people lose uh, parents when they're young. People generally um, don't, you know, react in a, they, they grow up, they, they move on, and they learn to deal with it. And I don't really think Harry has done that. Uh, but I, mean, I, think he, I think he spoke also in that interview about how he would see, um, or perhaps it was in his book, how he would see his mother in his dreams. And I think that that is something that a lot of people who've lost someone very suddenly and very tragically, uh, you know, they still see them, they still speak to them in their dreams. So I think yeah. that, uh, yeah, I think we can all kind of empathize or sympathize with him on that one. It, it's, it's a huge tragedy. Okay, we're going to fit in a quick break here. Let me play one more clip here for you from Prince Harry speaking to Anderson Cooper, 60 Minutes. And Anderson Cooper asks him here, why did you decide to go public with all of this and these comments about his own, his own family? Why did you not try to work this out in private, your problems and troubles? He answers that he did try to work it out privately, and he could not. He failed. So he felt the only thing he could do was speak publicly about his experience and he said he didn't do it to hurt his family have a listen to what he said here here's prince harry my brother and i love each other i love him deeply there has been a lot of pain between the two of us especially the last six years um none of anything that i've written anything i've included is ever intended to hurt my family all right Continue talking about Prince Harry's new book, his new round of fresh media interviews. My guest, a longtime royal watcher, Christina Blizzard. Christina, what did you think about the clip there we played just before the break where Harry says, look, I'm not trying to hurt my family here. He's just telling his truth. What do you think of that? Well, obviously, he is hurting his family. He knows he has wounded them deeply. He has lost all contact. I mean, he's... 
I think, I mean, he almost seems to be delusional about what he's doing. Uh, he's surprised when they don't answer his phone calls. Well, you know, perhaps you, you, you know, you might want to deal with this in a slightly different fashion. And, you know, to go on network television to air, some of these grievances are very petty. Uh, you know, he's a guy raised to enormous privilege in palaces. I think a lot of people are just sort of saying, get over yourself. Yeah, I know. I've heard that as well. On the other hand, I've heard a lot of sympathy for Meghan Markle, too. I mean, it really is a, a divisive kind of thing. How much do you think money plays into this? I mean, they're making a lot of money. They got, what, $100 million for the Netflix series? They got $20 million, possibly more, for the book deal. Well, I think they have to make a lot of money now. I mean, clearly, if they want to maintain this uh, lifestyle in Montecito in California, uh, they know, I mean, what else are they going to do? I mean, what, what else can Harry do? He's a helicopter pilot. He's not going to be able yeah. to support that lifestyle doing that. Megan, Megan wasn't a Hollywood actress. I mean, she was, you know, she was in suits, uh, but yeah. she never really cracked the big time. I mean, perhaps now she might be able to get a, a Hollywood role. I don't know. But I think they realize that, you know, the, the horizon is very limited for how long they have to make enough money right. to keep them going. Squeeze in a quick call here. Ray on the line in New West. Hi, Ray. Go ahead. Um. I wish people would just leave Harry and Meghan alone. I think the British tabloids are very racist when you see the comments and the headlines that they put in their papers. And if I had to vote today about the monarchy because of Charles and Camilla, I would vote get rid of it because Charles and Camilla did a terrible thing to Diana the way they did the whole thing. They were involved before he ever met Diana and proceeded with that relationship. That's disgusting. I'm sorry. The man has no credibility, and he shouldn't be king. Okay, Ray, thank you for the call. Well, I mean, I think the press have been pretty pretty unfair to Harry and Meghan, but uh, Christina, your thoughts? Well, they, they were pretty unfair to Charles and uh, Camilla, too. I mean, she was called the Rottweiler. They, you know, spared no details about his phone call on tampon gate, stuff like that. I mean, I yeah. think we can pretty well agree that the British media are pretty hard on uh, on anyone who does anything foolish. And I think that... You know, Harry and Meghan, you know, perhaps a little while ago, we might have said, leave them alone. Right at the moment, Harry and Meghan need to leave Harry and Meghan alone, I think, for a while. And, uh, you know, just take a step back for this privacy that they so crave. It's got about over just a minute and a half left here. Doris on Vancouver Island. Doris, you have 30 seconds here, okay? Go ahead. Hi. I I, want to echo the first caller. And in addition, I support Meghan and Harry because I see both sides of it in my own personal life. My my siblings have just got up and left for no reason. Don't there's no contact. I never know why. Um, we were close at one time. We're not now. They won't take calls for me. And my daughter was in in a marriage, uh, a really horrible marriage, and everybody took the husband's side and just slandered my daughter. So I, I'm seeing my own personal life within these mm. two. And I, I really do support them, but I, it, it's time that they do be quiet now and just leave, uh, live their mm. lives. And, um, you know, to respect for out of respect for themselves, they should stand back. But the king, um, I have no respect for him and I don't follow him. And with the Camilla and, and uh, you know, king thing, it, it's um, I, I don't have any use for the, for Thank the monarchy you. anymore. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Doris, for the call. 30 seconds left, Christina. Do you think the book is going to be a big hit? Sure looks like it will be. 
Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it's going to be a huge hit. Uh, I mean, a lot of it has been leaked already, so I'm not sure if anyone's going to shell out. I don't know what it is selling for on Amazon, but uh, I think it will be a big hit. I think that Harry and uh, Meghan will make a lot of money out of it. And let's just hope that this will put everything to rest and that they can move on and find the peace they so desperately are seeking. Christina, thank you for your time and thoughts on it today. My pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the mayhem that we've seen unfold in Mexico. I love Mexico. I love visiting there, going on vacation there. I've been with there with my family uh, several times. Puerto Vallarta, one of the nicest, my favorite places to visit. But man, oh man, we still have those warnings issued to Canadians about travel in Mexico. Right now, we saw the mayhem that just unfolded in Mexico after the arrest of the son of jailed drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. I've got Robert Almonte standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report now from ABC News. The Mexican city of Culiacan turning into a war zone after the capture of Ovidio Guzman, a leader of the Sinaloa cartel and son of infamous drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. Dozens of roadblocks were set up by armed men trying and failing to prevent Guzman from being taken out of the city. Attacks even launched at the airport. Here, military members take cover as a Mexican Air Force plane taxis down the runway. At the same time, at least one bullet striking this Aeromexico commercial flight, civilians forced to hunker down, though none were injured. The attacks reminiscent of 2019, when Guzman was briefly captured in Culiacan by the Mexican military. But cartel gunmen besieged the city, and Mexico's president ordered Guzman released, a poignant reminder of the power wielded by criminal organizations in Mexico. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Robert Almonte. Robert is a former U.S. Marshal for the Western District of Texas. He's the retired Deputy Chief of the El Paso Police Department. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Robert, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, you bet. Robert, I know you watch closely events on the other side of the border there in Mexico. And as we heard in that report there, this man who was arrested by authorities there, Ovidio Guzman, the son of El Chapo, he had been arrested once before a couple of years ago. I was getting like deja vu on this story because I remember when they arrested this guy the first time around and they let him go. Why did they let him go the first time? Yeah, well, that, well, that was a bit, the biggest problem. You know, in 2019, October, uh, that was basically uh, gave the Mexican government a black guy. It was an embarrassment to the Mexican government. I mean, you're arresting the son uh, who's wanted, who was wanted, by the way, uh, who's running the Sinaloa cartel. You have him in custody. And because the Mexican military uh, would receive threats from the uh, Sinaloa cartel, uh, the word reached President Obrador, and he released he ordered the release of uh, of Olvidio Guzman, and, and that should, never should have happened. That never should have happened, and that allowed uh, Olvidio to run free, and then they arrested him uh, recently uh, as well. But uh, he should have been in custody in 2019 when they had the uh, when they had the chance. I guess that, like it said in that story we heard, it shows mm-hmm. the power of these cartels. I think sometimes people don't realize the fi- the firepower and the scale of these cartels. These are like military organizations, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, some of these cartels, uh, 
You know, the two most powerful cartels in Mexico, and, and for that matter, in the world, are going to be the Sinaloa cartel and the CJN, excuse me, CJNG cartel, stands for Cartel de Jalisco, Nuevo Generación. Those are the two most powerful cartels in the world. And they have a big impact, uh, uh, as I said, throughout the world, and, and including Canada. But uh, these cartels, uh, sometimes, they're, well, for sure, they're better equipped as far as uh, uh, ballistic vests, as far as weapons, than the, uh, than the, the Mexican uh, police and, and military. Uh, they have tanks, they have rocket uh, launchers, they have grenades. Uh, so, yeah, there's no way that the municipal pe- uh, police or even state police can compete uh, with the firepower of the uh, cartels. And, and I just heard uh, today that the Mexican government, um, and it may have come from the president himself, declared that there is no war on the cartels. Well, I think that's the problem because somebody needs to get that message to the cartel because there is a war. And uh, the uh, Mexican uh, government uh, it simply isn't doing enough to address uh, all of their activity in Mexico. We expect U.S. President Joe Biden to travel to Mexico this week to meet with the Mexican president. Of course, our own Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, also part of this, the Three Amigos Summit, as it has been called. Do you think that this action by Mexican authorities to arrest this cartel leader was timed in advance of this uh, visit by the U.S. president? Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind. It was, that's exactly what it what it was. It was that some people are calling a political stunt. I guess I would call it that also. You know, they had the Mexican government said they've had Ovidio under surveillance for several months. Well, if you have him under surveillance, you know he's wanted. Why wasn't he arrested then? Well, the reason he wasn't arrested, I believe uh, the Mexican government held off so that they could time his arrest in conjunction with President uh, Biden's visit. And that's just uh show uh, or say, look, we're doing all we can. We're going after the cartel. We're doing our part. So I think it was uh, it was all show. He should have been arrested a long time ago. Here's the other thing, too, is that it's not enough to arrest Ovidio Guzman. You know, you really want to – Mexico really wants to show that they're serious about going after the cartel. They need to extradite Ovidio Guzman immediately. They also mm. need to extradite Caro Quintero, uh, who was re- uh, arrested, I believe, this last summer, uh, rearrested again. They need to indict him. He was responsible for the abduction, the torture, and murder of DEA agent Kiki Camarena. He needs to be sent to the United States to answer charges. So once Mexico starts extraditing uh, Olivia Guzman, Caro Quintero, and others, then I'll, think, I'll say, I'll be the first one to say, you know, they're getting serious about this. Until that happens, I'm not ready to say that. Speaking of Robert Almonte, former U.S. Marshal in Texas, talking about the mayhem in Mexico. I know these cartel leaders, Robert, I've been told that the thing they fear most of all is not a rival cartel leader that might be want to murder them. It's extradition to the United States, because once you get to the United States and you're put in the, the Alcatraz of the Rockies, where these supermax jails they're not tunneling out of there. That's where El Chapo is. He's not going to be able to dig a tunnel out of that supermax jail. Is that what they fear the most, extradition to the U.S.? That's exactly right. And they're going to be cut off from all contact with their family, uh, from their uh, cartel colleagues, if you will. Because when they're in the Mexican prison, they're, they're actually, uh, for a lot of them, it's like they're in a hotel. Uh, they're, tre- they're given the VIP treatment. 
And a lot of them continue to run the cartel from their so-called uh, prison cell in, in Mexico. That's exactly right. So that's why they don't want to come to the United States. If they get extradited to the United States, they know it's over. They get sentenced to life in the United States, they know it's over. They're not going to be involved with their family. Uh, uh, they're, they're going to be out of the business completely. Just like with Chapo Guzman, it's over. He's going to die in that prison. There's no doubt about it. He'll never go back to Mexico uh, unless he goes back, uh, until he goes back for his funeral. Okay, when you were saying there that you're calling on the, the authorities yeah. there in Mexico to extradite El Chapo's son, Ovidio, to the United States, why, I guess it sounds like you have some concerns that they will not do that. Why would they, why would they not do that? He's wanted, is he wanted in the United States? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Him, and, him and his brothers, and, and also well, we, we mustn't forget about Mayo, uh, Mayo Dambala, who was uh, working uh, jointly with Chapo Guzman. But let me answer your question, my concern, why they're not going to extradite him. Because, yes, what we saw when, when the Sinaloa cartel was, was shooting the other day, trying to uh, get, or I guess, get uh, Ovidio released from the Mexican uh, custody, uh, you know, the reason, they were, the reason they were doing that is because they don't want him to come to the United States. But here's the deal. Uh, Caro Quintero, this is my concern. Caro Quintero was arrested and convicted in Mexico and sentenced to many years in prison. Okay? So he was sentenced by, he was sentenced by the federal court. Now, I believe in 2017, a state court overruled the federal court. Tell me how that's possible anywhere in the world. So he was released. So what I'm trying to say is that's my concern that'll happen. That's my concern that it may happen with Ovidio Guzman or even Caro, Caro Quintero again, because corruption, that's the biggest problem in Mexico. There's no doubt in my mind there was corruption, bribery involved that resulted in the re- early release of Caro Quintero. And that's my concern. President Obrador said, well, I don't have anything to do with it. It's up to the judges. Well, I'm very concerned about the corruption in Mexico, including the court systems. Hey, Robert, last question for you. What would you say to someone who would like to go on a, a vacation to Mexico? This is a very popular vacation destination for Canadians, especially people from British Columbia. We love going down to uh, various points in Mexico as part of Vallarta or some of these other cities. You know, we've seen travel advisories and Canadians being advised to shelter in place because of the mayhem we've seen there. Like, would, what would your advice be to people if they're thinking of going on a, on a vacay down there? Two words. Don't go. Oh. Don't go. Yeah, I say don't go. And, you know, I'm not just saying that now in light of what happened. I'm, I've been saying that for quite a while now. Last year, uh, there were several incidents in different resorts in Mexico uh, where the cartels were involved in shootouts. Now, here, here's why I say don't go. The, the Canadian tourists, uh, tourists from the United States, anywhere in the world, they go to Mexico and go to the resorts, and they're going to have a good time. They're not going to be the target. I'm not concerned about that. They're not the target. My concern is that they're at one of these resorts on the beach, enjoying the view of the ocean, and they're having their margarita. And all of a sudden, well, they're unaware, the, the target of a rival cartel is sitting at a table next to theirs. And the cartels are not very careful when they come in to wipe out their enemy. They're just, there's a spring bullet all over the place. And if an innocent person, like it has happened in Mexico, is killed, the cartel simply consider that uh, collateral damage. So I've been saying that for, uh, for a while. And then here's the other thing. I think this incident with Ovidio Guzman, this is my concern. I hope I'm wrong, is that we may not 
we may not have seen the end of the Sinaloa cartel trying to free Orvidio Guzman. So I'm mm. concerned that we we may see them try something again. That's my concern. But I've been telling people uh, for a long time, over a year now, don't go to Mexico. Robert, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.